Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Well, good day, mates. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have returning to our show our old friend, Dr. Peter Enns. Dr. Peter Enns has a new book coming out called The Sin of Certainty, which we'll get into that along with um, Pete explains to us why he didn't ask me to be one of the people who gave a blurb for the book on the back, which I know you'll find that to be very enlightening and also encouraging at the same time. So we've got that coming up for you in just one second. But before we get to our friend Pete, let me tell you about something else. Um, some of you have made some comments about the levels for the podcast being a little low. Uh, most of those typically happen when we do a Skype or now we're using FaceTime to record those uh, phone calls. And uh, your complaints have been heard. Your prayers sent up on high through the internet have been received and I'm trying something new out. Tried it last time with old Richard Beck when he was in the bird sanctuary for that podcast. And I think the levels are a little bit better now. Um, if not, my bad. Sorry about that. Um, wear some headphones or something that are louder. I don't, I'm not smart enough to figure this stuff out. All I do is I do the podcast and this is the best I got. So anyway, with that being said, I hope you enjoyed the, uh, this one. I think the levels can be a little better and, um, yeah, that's it. So Pete Ann's coming up here. We'll do the wrap-up soon. I've got an idea for something different I'm going to try out next month. And um, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. I'm just going to post it. So um, get ready for that in a couple weeks. And um, that's it. Here we go. And P.S. I really just stalled this long because I needed to fill time before this one started. Because I had to chop something or whatever. Goodbye. Well, let's start talking. Um, okay. It's been a Are long time, and our old friend, Dr. Peter Enns, has been heartbroken because he hasn't been on the podcast, but finally, he returns to the show today. Welcome. Yay. It's been, me. It has been a long time, though. Well, I'm trying to think. I think it was um, last summer. Does that sound right? You, know, you want to know why? It's because I knew you had this book coming out, and so I knew we were going right. to talk around this time. And so I'm kind of feel weird, like, okay, I, what if I talk to you like two months before your book comes out, and then we talk again because I don't have a copy of the book yet? And so really, it's the book's fault that we haven't been talking much. So thanks and a then lot. Then we start dating. You have to do that. Yeah, I know. I can't help that. Yeah. But we can't. We can't do this too often. Why not? I don't know. It'd be weird. Well, I don't think it'd be weird. Um. Do you feel like maybe you're a little yeah, intimidated? Think- is that what it is? No, I just don't like you. So, you know, Pete, why no, would you say I don't that? want to do it that often. <laughs> I feel like that came from a really dark place that maybe you maybe a need deep to deal with. place. I know. Yeah. I'll try. Maybe I'll write a book about it. You know what? Um, let me tell you what my friend Richard says. If you don't transform your pain, you'll transmit it. And you just trans- I know. transmitted your pain to me. On you. Yeah. My goodness, I did. Yeah. That's right. Somehow you got him well, to endorse your yeah. book. I don't think he, Richard Rohr would endorse this if he would have known kind of where you're coming from. <laughs> I know how messed up I am. Yeah. Actually, the funny 
second thing is that um, a mutual friend of ours, Brad Jozak. Oh yeah. Uh, he asked. He's a, he knows Richard Rohr very well, and he asked him if he would look at the book and uh, and endorse it. And he right away said no, because <laughs> he just said, "I mean, I get like five book requests to endorse every day, or something ridiculous like that." He says, "I just can't." So we waited a couple months, and then Harper One uh, contacted him, and um, then he said yes. I mean, actually, he didn't just say yes. He actually got the book and read it pretty quickly and wrote a really nice endorsement. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about yeah, that. Yeah, it was, it was a nice review. Yeah. You had some good reviews on there. Yeah, I did. Yeah. 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 Sarah Bessie. Hey, Sarah. Welcome. Yeah. Uh, Brueggemann was on there. Uh-huh. That's not a bad list at all. Yeah. There's someone else. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty excited about it. I mean... Okay, so you know, you asked. Rohr, I mean, the book's crap. But yeah, I yeah, yeah. So that cover, you know. So. Okay, when when Roar said no to you first, and so you start going down the yeah. list, you know, Brueggemann, Bessie, they're on there. How, um, like, how far down would we have had to go before you asked me to endorse a book? I mean, are we saying like top fifteen? Uh, I would make the forty man roster, let me, right? Let me pass the buck. Let me pass the buck. The final decisions are made by the publisher. But Harper, Harper, and they try to get people with with either a momentum or a certain gravitas. I I feel like they like me at Harper One. They probably yeah. do. So I think if they knew who you, if they knew who you were, I think they would really like you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. The um, <laughs> that's hurtful. The first time I met Suzanne, who is um, senior publicist for Harper One, a couple years ago. I was interviewing okay. uh, Mr. Rob Bell. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah. yeah. First time interview, she said, "Hey, are you uh, are you working on writing?" And I said, uh, "Well, yes, but let's try to get Pete Enns publish a few things first, and then I'll send you some book proposals." <laughs> yeah, I appreciate yeah, that. You're welcome. Yeah. yeah, help the old man kickstart a career. You know what? So that's good. I'm yeah. just I'm nice like that. And so one of the things that that happened to me, I read the book, "The Sin of Certainty." which I know for certain you'll love. Um, that's to my listeners, mm-hmm. not you. I'm sure you already love your own book, but that goes back more to your character. Um, so when I, read, when I read the book, something struck me that I've never experienced or thought of before. And you know, we, we've talked multiple uh-huh. times. I've read a bunch of your books. I have commentaries yeah. that you've written. And I've never once before thought that you're an actual human being. Like that you have like human mm. emotions and like humanity. And for some reason, it came yeah. through in this book. So my question is, have you been hiding this the whole time or is this something new that you've developed? <laughs> um, it's always been there. I just don't mm-hmm. always show it. Just keep it down. See, my, one of my daughters read the book too and she goes, Dad, this is a – this is like a real book. She goes, this is a real book. This is the kind of book people don't want to read because it's about you. And it's like you're letting in, you know, you're letting people in yeah. more. And, um, but I mean, you know, with on that, all kidding aside, it's just, you know, I've actually never had a big problem with letting people in on a process that I'm going through. But I've just, I, I don't feel, I never feel any shame like being vulnerable or like, what will people say? Cause I don't care. And it's not because like, I don't, th- I don't ever care what people think, but, but because there are people who might really appreciate it. And those are the kinds of people I want to think about when I'm telling stories of my own life. And, um, 
I really like listening to other people who have stories to tell about their own life because that's I learn from that, um, and and you know better than sometimes through some other ways, like more didactic yeah, kinds of means. So, and 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 I you know I, I resonate with that. I like I like doing it, and uh, I figured this was a kind of book that I I should probably write. I, I even say in the acknowledgments, I, I still have a little paragraph where I talk about. I think I've been writing this book most of my life. You know, it's always been in there. And I remember writing, I, I don't journal, but I wrote in a journal, um, I'm 55, right before I got married. I was like 22, 23 years old. And uh, um, about, I was having this existential crisis about meaning and about the big questions of life and why am I here, here, not there, now, and not then. You know, just these, these, these questions are coming um, sort of fast and furious because I was about to go through a major life transition to get married. And I, I found that journal again oh, about a year or so ago, and I read it, and I said, I haven't changed a bit, in a sense. I, I still ask the same questions I did in my early 20s, and that's always fueled why – I mean, that's why I went to seminary in the mm-hmm. first place. That's why I want to continue on and do doctoral work, because I just – you know, I, I just th- – there's always a process going on, and um, and this book is a little part of that, you know, and, and focusing maybe more on the last 10 yeah. years, I'd say. You know? So as a – academic we we see all, obviously your academic work but you typically are going to experience more of the um memoir type stuff from someone who's not in an academic field and so yeah i liked it for that reason because in some ways it kind of blended you know different genres of you know you have an academic who's who's writing on a popular level but inserting his own struggle and do you think that your ability or maybe your desire to be more vulnerable and transparent came because of, you know, ten, you write about your, uh, the ending of your time at Westminster. Do you think that being so public yeah. and people knowing that struggle and that part of your story helped you do this? Or is that um, just a very uh, popular part that people probably know about your story? Yeah, I, I think it didn't have anything to do directly with those, like, wanting to sort of talk more about it. I think I've always mm-hmm. sort of been like that. And um, But these are issues that just, I mean, like I say in the book, it's not just that. That was a part of a lot of stuff that was happening, some of which I won't even write about. You know, it's not even for mm-hmm. public consumption. But there, there are a number of things sort of converging that had this effect on me that I would say is very transformative, like in my mid fifties, mid forties rather, and and um, that was more of a dramatic shift for me than pretty much anything that's ever happened to me, except maybe raising my hand in church and becoming a Christian really? when I was sixteen. Yeah, I mean it was it was it was that sort of a it was one of these you know like Richard Rohr we talk about him you know these, these midlife mm-hmm. moments where. Um, you have a choice to sort of stay in old patterns or change them and move into something else that's mm-hmm. less controllable. And, or like James Fowler's, you know, stages of faith, it's moving away from um, uh, holding on to a certain degree of certainty and moving on to something and saying, I just, I'm not really sure right now. And I'm fine with, in fact, I'm happier and not feeling like I have to, you know, know everything and defend everything, which, of course, is an occupational hazard with people who yep. have academic degrees, right? And yeah. um, So I just didn't want to be like that. I just, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to die holding on to things that I would be better off letting go of. Mm-hmm. 
Because I am going to die one day, Luke, you know. Yeah, no, I I mean, it's probably not too far away from now. Um, yeah, I probably. Mean, I'm hoping to get out of it somehow. The yeah. wheels are turning, but I'm not sure how that's going to work. So I mean, if you get to 60, I'll be impressed. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> if I'm not assassinated by then, probably. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, like I said, 60 would be great for you. If you do that, that'd be great. Um, so you, you tell in this very personal section about obviously your professional career, but you also talk about your personal life, specifically your, your life as a parent. And, mm -hmm. you know, obviously your daughter's co-signed on her story being part of your story. Cause obviously they, they obviously coincide yeah. as a father of daughters as well. I hear that and I'm going, you know, your intellectual curiosity and your intellectual uh, pursuits have led to a professional struggle. And some might think that's the biggest thing going on, but anyone who's a parent realizes that when you have a personal struggle with your, with your own kid, that trumps mm -hmm. any sort of professional oh, struggle you're going through, right? Yeah. Does it, it, it makes those professional, let's say, academic struggles look silly in comparison, actually. Um, but, you know, it's, I mean, part of it, it, it it's, I mean, I, I know you're not suggesting this, but I don't compartmentalize, let's say, my intellectual life and my personal life because sort of an intellectual seeker is part of, it's my personality, right? So, and, and it's, it's actually, you know, by, by, let's say, letting go of certainty or whatever we want to say, for me, that's not, some, that's not a rejection of my academic life. It's my academic life has helped me go there, as a matter of fact, because yeah. of, you know, studying the Bible and trying to be very careful with it. I, you know, I, it, it, the Bible, I think, actually supports uh, a, a journey where you don't control God and, and you actually walk by faith and not by sight. Right. So yeah. so for me, those things aren't they're not separate quadrants of my life. At least I hope they're not. You know, they invade each other all the time. Yeah, I, I liked how in the book there was, a, in some ways, those two two streams of your life were about to intersect at the exact same day when there was, uh, you know, big transition with both of them at the same time. Uh, and before mm -hmm. that, you're at this um, cookout for your son's baseball yeah. team. You're in Arizona, yeah, and you have this experience, and you, you know, you're you're looking for something. Someone gives it to you. It's this gift, and then so you interpret it as this thing from God. And mm -hmm. as like this God moment. And what I really appreciate about that being included is hearing how someone like yourself with your you know, intellectual background is processing an, a, I don't know how much you would call it, a spiritual experience in a way that mm -hmm. is very, um, I mean, you're deconstructing it and you're critiquing it at the same time. You're also giving it validity and saying, this is a God thing while also saying, yeah. How is a, the thing was about a live strong bracelet? Like how is you know someone giving me a live strong bracelet, this special thing? And I appreciated a window into how mm -hmm. those two things intersected. And so my yeah. question is, yeah. have you been crying any more at your son's baseball events since then? Uh, say that last part again. Have you been you crying more? Have you been crying more at uh, cookouts and stuff recently? No, that was the last time I cried at a cookout. Okay, so how do you? <laughs> I couldn't be too serious for that long. So how do you, <laughs> I, I want to hear how you process a, some, something like that and saying this is clearly a, a, a sign from God, or maybe not the word clearly shouldn't be used, but you're willing to say this is from God. Yeah. While also being able to say this is kind of ridiculous to say that God would give someone a live strong bracelet when there are a million things that are in some ways far more important. Kids are being abducted course, and kidnapped and right. there's genocide, which yeah. makes my struggle right. seem very minute. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, can I just fill in a little bit of the details? So, I mean, listeners, I'm not assuming that they've read the book, but um, about the Live Strong bracelet. Yeah, let's hear the story. On. Yeah, just very briefly, um, my daughter, uh, Elizabeth, who is in the book and gave me permission to sort of write about this, not too much because she's actually writing about it herself, more just how this affected me. But uh, long story short, she was, after many, many years of struggling with anxiety and depression and eating disorders, was pretty clearly about to leave home for a very long time to go to a wilderness program and then to um, a therapeutic boarding school all the way out in Arizona. And um, she was you know, courageously, valiantly trying to sort of bring meaning into her own suffering. She's 16 at the time, very wise. I mean, just, you know, beyond wise for her age, the suffering does that to you sometimes. And she said, you know, Dad, could you get me a live strong bracelet? I just want to wear it as a reminder of, of, of being strong and being courageous. And I said, sure, I was going out to Arizona. And lo and behold, I couldn't find one anywhere. And, and, and they were a thing at the time. You know, this is like 2007. And, um, so, you know, I, I tried and I called Liz and I said, listen, I, I don't think I can find one, but I'll keep looking. I went to malls. I called around, couldn't find anything. So I go to this uh, cookout where my son's baseball team, the reason I was in Arizona is because my son's baseball team in college was in spring training. And there was a cookout with um, a host who were uh, alumni of, of the college. My son went to Middlebury College in Vermont. And um, I'm talking to the host. He's flipping burgers, and he reaches his arm out to flip a burger, and he's got a Livestrong bracelet on his wrist. And I look at it, and I think to myself, wow, he's got one. I wonder if he knows where I can get one. And then sort of in the back of my mind, another thought entered my mind saying, I wonder if he has one you can have. And so I just thought that was ridiculous, and I put that out of my mind immediately, and I said, Hey, John, you've got a Livestrong bracelet on. He looks at me and he goes, do you want one? Which I found to be a very, very, very odd response because I didn't ask him for one. I just noticed, oh, you've got a Livestrong bracelet. Like, oh, you've got Nike sneakers or you're wearing a baseball hat or you drive a Volvo. It's just a conversational piece. But it was as if he heard a different question, you know. And I, I, I just didn't say anything. And he said, actually, I've got a whole bag full of them in my closet. Would you like Several, you know, so I, I wound up taking five, one for every member of my family. And um, it, it just it was one of these moments that, you know, when you try to, let's say, defend it on an intellectual basis, I just can't do it. But I was there yeah. <laughs> and, and you sense something of God's presence. And I just sense that it's OK, because I was I was worried out of my mind. How are we going to help her, my daughter? What are we going to do with her? How is this all going to work out? And to me, that was a moment of God's presence where. I got this in ways you don't understand. And I had to let go of it. I, I had to let go of the, the thought that I could actually save my daughter and save her from pain. And I had to let go and say, you know, God says, I got this. And, you know, I, I, I talk in the book about how I know all the answers for, for, for deconstructing that moment. But it was still too powerful for me emotionally. And it still is. I mean, I'm emotional now, even just recounting it, because the, the memory comes back so quickly. It's this Ebenezer, you know, that, that we all need once in a while of just this God moment. And um, I chose to say, I'm not going to overly intellectualize this. I'm, I'm not going to allow my dysfunctional brain to determine what is real and what is not real, and what's true and not true. I'm just going to let the experience be what it is. In part because I actually do believe that God 
we, we connect with God, commune with God, not always through our mental processes, but through senses and feelings and intuitions and all things like that. So I just, I, I, you know, for me, I just, I, I let go of the need to control that moment and just let it be what it is. What would you right? say to someone who has that same sort of, as you would call it, a dysfunctional brain that wants to deconstruct this and say, obviously, you know, this is not a God thing. What would you say to them as a warning or maybe a suggestion to help them move past the dysfunction of their brain, which wants to discount the ability for God to be in a moment like that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, people who live in their brains, which is, you know, I know very well, um, it's hard to talk them out of it until stuff happens. And, yeah. you know, I have a whole section in the book about life happening and, and th these little moments that happen to all of us that lead us to question the level of certainty we have and lead us to, I think, decide whether or not we're going to take the risk of, of, it is a risk for intellectual people to think that there is a there is a reality. Words fail us. There's a reality. There's a presence. There is something beyond what we can process and account for with our minds, which are beautiful things. I mean, I'm not I'm not trashing the brain or analytical thinking or anything like that. But but if you know if God is real, I don't think God can be confined by that. Yeah. that. I think that's a part of the human experience, but it doesn't define the human experience. And um, you know, I would probably just, you know, each person's different, but I wouldn't try to, like, tell them they're wrong. I would just say, listen, I, here's how I process it, here's why. And sometimes people are ready to hear that, and sometimes they're not, and that's yeah. fine with me. I wouldn't have heard it 20 years ago. Why do you think you could you hear know? it now? Like, what happened over those two decades that make you able to Because I got it? my head handed to me, that's why. You know, just, like, life happened, and, and little things and big things. Nothing um, tragic, you know, like, for some people, there are really tragic things, and I can't blame that level of suffering, but it's, it's, it's a, these, these um, regular forced deaths, I guess I'd put it that way, that of, of realizing how little control we actually have over our existence, which is a hard thing for a type A intellectual German type to sort of do, right? So that's why these... There's certain moments that speak to me more because of my personality type that might not speak to other people as much. Yeah. Well, right. Could this you... issue of control and controlling the world through our brain. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what's an example of a forced death that you go through in life? Um, well, I mean, you know, back to Richard Rohr, I, I, I heard, I think it was a podcast or something years ago, I heard about, um, you know, life is really a series of letting go. Mm-hmm. And we have little opportunities to let go our whole lives, and it gets us ready for the last letting go, which is our death. Which sounds rather morose, but it's also very realistic. Yeah. So it's like letting go of um, your kids when they go to college and you don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Things like that. You know, it's, it's, it's when they go out on dates or something, or they go out with, with their friends and, when they're 15, and letting go of certain kinds of things, right, yeah. that are age-appropriate. I mean, you want to you monitor children, obviously, but... You know, they gets to a point where um, I can't control, I, I'm speaking hypothetically now, I can't c control career choices of my children, right? Um, I can't control whether my employer likes me, right? I have to let go of those things and not sort of manufacture and manipulate reality so that it 
keeps me in a comfortable sort of narrative where everything makes sense. And I, I have this illusion of control, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's things that happen every single day, you know, um, uh, I'm stressed because I have so much thing, so many things to do to get ready for school the next day, but I'm going to stop doing those things now and do other things that are actually very important for maybe my family, right? That's a letting go of something that you want to have control over and saying there are other things that are more important and I need to let go of this. What really is is a fear at the end of the day. It's you're letting go of a fear because if I if I don't do um, sorry about that. if I don't if I don't do um, that if I don't do that thing I'll feel bad or I'll create anxiety for myself. You know, um, uh, and 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 it's it's letting go of the need to massage and 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 to comfort yourself. You know, I mean, let me another example. Um, when my daughter Liz, when she's a little bit younger, maybe about fifteen, she um, she said to me, I, "I tried to get her to do things that she wasn't really able to do emotionally, like maybe going to school or going out with friends or things like that." She said, "Liz, you need to do these things and to get over the anxiety." And at one point, she said to me, "Dad, you have to stop making me do things because if I do them, you'll feel better, mm-hmm. right?" And I said, okay, that's actually a really, really insightful point. Yeah. yeah. So, so I've heard Roar talk about that we learn um, to trust God in death because we've learned to trust God all throughout life. And so all the little... Th- yeah, that's the way to put it. Yeah. yeah so yeah. all these things that you have to let go of, you lose control of, it's like building up the muscle memory so that when you were faced yeah. with the ultimate like unknowing and inability to control something you've already built up that okay i can trust god so in this mm-hmm. in the little things so in the right. big things i can which is a difficult thing to do and right. so like you lose control and you lose boundaries is like one of the things that typically happens you talked about how when you you left mm-hmm. um westminster you you lost the boundary markers and so there were no like guardrails or guards who were keeping you you know, intellectually or theologically, this place, and you were kind of wrestling with, okay, where am I going to go? And w- one of the questions that I get very often about <clears throat> the aforementioned Rob Bell is, mm-hmm. is Rob still a Christian? Do you think? Do you think Rob's a Christian? Like that, I, all the time. And and you see this in the way that people talk about Rob, where they'll they'll have a, have yeah. a quote or a link or a picture with Rob, and they'll say, now I don't agree with Rob on everything, but I sure love his fill in the blank. And, and I think right. one of the, the questions that's behind that is, okay, this guy doesn't have the boundary markers anymore, like you experienced when you left Westminster. And some people worry right. that if you go down certain rabbit trails, if you start thinking these things and questioning things and letting go of these things, that you'll just get lost. And once you lose the boundaries and you lose the, the guards who are supposed to keep you intact, what's keeping you in faith? And so w- when you found mm-hmm. yourself leaving... Westminster, and there are no more boundary guards. What What do you think kept you in faith? Um, I think that's that's a very hard question for me to answer because I think it, it it's just beyond the mental categories of articulation. You know, there is, uh, you know, I do I do believe that there is a true mysterious, and I don't mind using the word mystical side to faith that um, defies reason, 
very often. And, and I use words like, and others use them too, about the Christian faith is transrational. Yeah. It's not irrational. It's not, it's not irrational, but it's, it's something that, you know, the mind only gets you so far. So, when, you know, when I'm asked what kept you in there, I don't know. Maybe I think it's more just my understanding of what the faith even is. Maybe just got bigger, and I am in it. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't like you know I left and then coming back. It's more. I felt more like parts of me were being erased and rewritten, hmm. and that's a different kind of experience. So you, I think I think people need to go through their agnostic and atheist periods. And I don't mean just like once so they can come back and be perfectly strong, wonderful Christians. I think maybe even periodically, you know, I talk to I talk to Christians, I mean, intellectual Christians a lot who, you know, I mean, you ever have agnostic, you know, uh, periods of your life and, and they say, yeah, what day is it? Yeah, it's Tuesday. Yeah, it's my agnostic. And, and they mean it. You know, they're kidding, but they also mean it like it's a part. It is a part of their faith. To. Um, to to acknowledge that they don't always mm-hmm. know. And the point of that is not to leave that not always knowing and get back to that rock-solid certainty. It's actually realizing that that rock-solid certainty is not adequate for a true life of faith. Yeah. Okay, so one of the lines that I loved in the book is the following. Doubt is only the enemy of faith when we equate faith with certainty in our thinking. And so I'm going to tell you what that means, even though, you know, you wrote that sentence. <laughs> even though it's self-evident, but go yeah. ahead. Well, you know, <laughs> you need someone who's a, you know, a professional Christian, not just an academic to describe this. I got you. Yeah. I got you. Because, yeah. you know, I'm a preacher and all. Uh, it, when <laughs> Okay, but you, people can't doubt when... Is your church shrinking, Luke? I'm just no, wondering. No, it's doing is, great. How's that going? It's do- is yeah. it good? Okay. Are you going to come visit sometime? Yeah, if I'm invited. Ooh. I'm not just going to Why show not? Up. And after the check clears, of course, then, then I'll be <laughs> That hurts, because I've read your books before, <laughs> you know, I got them for free. And so I feel like yeah. you're going to owe me something. We'll work that out some other okay. time. We'll work okay. that out, yeah. Where are we going with this? Oh, yeah, this quote that I found <laughs> on the internet somewhere. Oh, the quote. No, 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 yeah. okay. But people can't have their agnostic days and moments and phases and seasons when... When they think of doubt, do you, th- do you think you can be agnostic and still have faith? Like, do you think agnostic and doubt can be synonyms in the way you constructed that? Uh, perhaps, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think agnostic is a position of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to parse these words too much like an academic. I think doubt leads to uncertainty. In other words, um, Uncertainty is a state of mind where you say, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I think it's doubting old old truths or old certainties that, that leads you to a place of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So another way, I, I, I guess, I, mean, I don't talk about this in the book, but you know, I've thought about it since then. Um, I'm not sure how to equate doubt and uncertainty. And I don't know if doubt is as spiritually sustaining a place as a place of uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? Be, to, to have, to acknowledge and abide by the fact that things are uncertain in life, I think that's a rather stable way 
to live the life yeah. of faith. I think doubting is the way of getting mm-hmm. you there. Okay, so if we... Yeah, if yeah. That makes sense. I'd have, to, I'd have to think about that more. Maybe I'm not really saying that well. But okay, yeah. but your definition of faith is that it's not a what word, not like what thoughts do you have about God, but it's about a who word, like who do you trust? And so if you have right. doubt, which can lead to uncertainty, that doesn't dismantle your ability to still have trust in God, even if you don't have all of the, the categories right. checked off in each of the boxes, right? Right, yeah. Um, because ultimately, I think we have to trust God regardless of how well our knowing is going at the moment. You know, um, and again, I, I think that's sort of biblical. I mean, I, I see that in... in Voices from the Bible. I talk about some mm-hmm. of the Psalms. Um, I, I, I go through a little bit of Ecclesiastes and Job. I just think those are very, very important books for people today. Uh, thinking through, thinking through. My cat just Hello, cat. went on my lap. Hi, Marmalade. This is this How is the you? animal that Marmalade was in the foreword of the book, and uh, so I think it's only fitting that the uh, cat now makes it in the podcast. <laughs> She wants camera time, I guess, or yeah, mic time. Get out of here. All right. Like, yeah, right. Uh, but, <laughs> cat. So you talk about Psalms. You talk about uh, Ecclesiastes. And yeah. you know the psalmists, they're asking the question, like, does God play by God's own rules? Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, lament Psalms that, that go after God with both barrels. Um, and I mentioned a few, like 88, 89, 73 are the three Psalms. There are three of my favorite lament Psalms that don't, always resolve things nice and neatly. Um, Psalm 89 basically calls God a liar for not coming through on his covenant with David that someone will never see sitting on the throne in Jerusalem from the line of David, and yet there's exile. And um, there's almost like a mocking taunt on the part of the psalmist, you know, and I, and I think that's, you know, that expresses the reality of the fact that life does not always follow that script that we're told it's supposed to follow. If you believe in God, this and this will happen. That's in the Bible too. That's that's the Deuteronomistic. Yeah. There's black and white, there's righteous and unrighteous, and you do this, you live, you do that, you die. But you have voices in the Bible that call it into question, that actually debate that notion and say it doesn't work. And um, I find that very refreshing that um, there's an unsettledness to that theology my phone's ringing. Should I get it? No. I would assume right. that's probably the theology police calling to tell you that you're just. Dis- oh no! It's the police. It is the police. They want me. Oh, yeah. No. Not again. No. no okay. No. So you. Okay. You talk about Psalms. You talk about Ecclesiastes. Job. We get yeah. that. We get that. those are those make sense and they're good Psalms to reference. I like that. What shocked me was not that you went to those texts, but that you tell a story or you quote two stories about joggers who are going oh, for a yes. jog and a branch falls on. Two different people, two different isolated uh, encounters, and kills yeah. them. And yeah. that had a profound effect on you somehow, which I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. What is it about? It's, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just where I was at the time, you know, when, when, those, um, uh, when those things happened. I mean, I, I might not have noticed it five years earlier or five years later, but I was at that moment where it made a lot of um, – I had an impact on me. So yeah. Why, where's God when you need him? I mean, you know that these people could have left 30 seconds earlier. They'd be fine. Or 30 seconds later, they'd be fine. And, and it's just, you know, what a, what a random set of circumstances that results in death. And, 
you know, the sovereign God planned it. Okay, whatever. I, we don't know that. And no, he didn't, <laughs> you know, um, or, you know, maybe that person was really bad and God wanted them to die. Yeah. Or maybe God needed another angel and things like that. It's just, you know, th- those are silly childish explanations, in my opinion, from something that's a profound grief. And, um, and you know, that's part of a survey that I talk about, too, in the book that I did on my blog where... Um, you know, the age-old question of where is God in the midst of suffering and really heinous suffering that some people go through. And that's that's a reason why people really struggle with God and, and, and doubt and and move to unbelief, too, over things like yeah. this. Yeah. So you encourage people, even when God in your world and your thoughts don't, like, line up, that you still trust God anyway. So if you're the jogger or you, that's your spouse mm-hmm. who's going for a jog and a tree branch falls on her head and you go... Yeah, thanks a lot, God. How yeah. how are we supposed to still trust God even when, you know, you read the Psalms, it says, you know, my help comes from the Lord, and right. you're going, well, I really could have used your help on that tree branch not falling. Right. What do you think it yeah, means? That been nice. Yeah, yeah, for them, I'm sure. Well, um, you know, so you're asking, I mean, how would I yeah, respond to that myself? Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing you have to cross our bridge when you come to it. It's, I think it's hard to discuss that in the abstract. I've never experienced things like that. I've experienced other things that I talk about in the book, but nothing like that. But I know people who have had those experiences, and I can see how, you know, just these unspeakable agonies have moved them to a point of the kind of faith that I actually want to pay attention to, yeah, you know, and it's, it just isn't a simple answer. Like, well, here's how I kept my faith. It's just, I mean, to me that, that, that makes it somewhat silly and that, um, uh, that almost, that denigrates the experience somewhat. It's just people who just keep moving and they still believe and trust God through all that. You know, I don't understand it. And I even say in the book, I don't understand it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I don't know. Life's hard. Yeah, yeah, definitely is. Yeah. And there are plenty of moments there, uh, as you would call them in the book, uh-oh moments that expose that you've, like, created God into something that maybe that's not who God is. Like, that maybe that's not right. God's identity. And the, the book starts off with a story. You're on a flight um, <laughs> from a conference, yeah. and you— uh, some of these details are a little fuzzy because when I first started reading your book, I came down with a virus right afterwards. And I started throwing oh, really? it for like it. And I don't like I don't think your book caused that, but I'm also not a doctor. <laughs> so who am I to say that you aren't going to get sick if you read this book? But I'm just saying my memory's a little fuzzy on this. So <laughs> before I got sick, I read it and I thought what happened was you watched this Disney movie and it basically dismantles all the theological training that you got at Harvard because your worldview of God does not sustain, isn't sustainable through this Disney movie. Why do you think Disney is more substantial than your education? (laughs) Um, I don't. Uh, Actually, it wasn't really anything that happened at Harvard. It was more things that happened in my Christian upbringing and in seminary and then at Westminster as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was the bridge to Terabithia was the movie and um, there there is a scene where um, uh, Jess and uh, Maybell, brother and sisters, they're nice kids, but sort of grow up in a fundamentalist home. And then there's um, another character who, um, my goodness gracious, I forgot her name. I'm having a blank here. It's not Jess. Anyway, 
it's the girl, the cool one, who, I mean, they, they go to school. She just moved into the area. They're in fifth grade. And she has no religious background at all. And but she went to church with, with, with uh, Jess and Maybell. And um, she really liked it. She said, I don't really like all that hell talk, but I, I really like it. it was, I think Jesus is, is wonderful. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. Jesus was killed and he had nails driven through his hands because God's angry and we're all going to hell and this and that. And, um, you know, she, she looked at, at them and she said, do you really believe that? And says, we have to believe it. It's in the Bible. And if we don't, we'll go straight to hell. And she said, the free spirited one, she said, um, you know, I don't I don't believe that God is in the business of throwing people into hell, like for being wrong about things. He's too busy running all this. And she looks up into the sky and, you know, the, it's a beautiful day and, and, and it's it feels like spring, a late spring day. And it's beautiful. And. And I and that just you know, I wasn't prepared for that in a movie like this. I was like half paying attention mm-hmm. to it because it articulated something that I had been this nagging thought I've had for many, 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 many years. That is God really in the business of throwing people? Is God permanently, perpetually angry? Mm-hmm. Right. And and is it just like a touchy drunk uncle? You don't want to sort of get them po'd too quickly because they might do something to you quickly. Or is God basically good and loving and nurturing and on your side and wanting you and pulling for you, so to speak? And I mean, that that moment in this movie where I was caught off guard, which is how life happens. You're always caught off guard. I just, it just made me sort of really feel uncomfortable with saying, like, like you know, my, my, let's say, public or ecclesiastical life was one way. But deep down, my heart was saying something else, or at least it was saying, you got to look at this again. You know, it's it, it maybe what you've always been taught and what you sort of parrot back to people is something you need to sort of move past and let go of. Yeah. Right? And and it wasn't a book. It wasn't a conference. It was a stupid Disney movie. <laughs> you know, the company that gives us, you know, Son of Flubber and Herbie, the whatever car, you know, yeah. and, and now we have this theological discussion at 30,000 feet. I just, it, it was just, it, it had one of these moments that I, I just, and I, it just, everyone has these moments where you just, you just know something's happening yeah. to you and you know it and you can't articulate it, but you know, it's big and you know, something is coming to the surface that you've always known has been there. And now it's finally coming to the surface and having its moment. And you know, things aren't going to be the same from that point on. Yeah. Yeah, once I saw Ocean's 13, my life was never the same either. <laughs> Not 12 same or 11? Or, uh, okay. No, it was okay. 13. They had to build up to that one. Um, so this book, The Sin of Certainty, is a great book. I'm really glad you wrote Thanks. it. I think it's an outstanding book, and uh, I love it. With that being said, there's one part in there that I think you probably could could you know kind of cut okay. out. Um, you said some terrible things about sermons. Yeah. You said you said that like it shouldn't be the centerpiece of the church, and I th- I think that's wrong. Um, and ironically, so there was a sociologist on a while ago, and he said the same thing: sermons are too much of part of church. Now an academic says it, and I think it's a coincidence that people who don't get to preach are the ones who are taking shots at sermons. That's it. So keep saying that to yourself, Luke. 
Thank you. <laughs> I will. And I'll say it to everyone I get to talk to on Sunday when they have to sit down and listen to me How long do talk. you preach for? Uh... You know, it's weird because there's a. T- it's usually like 27 minutes, but some people say it seems like eternity when I'm yeah. preaching. I hear you, man. Which I think is a compliment, right? I In the so. South? Yeah. 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 I, you think I should go longer than that? You think 30? Maybe I should go 45? I think you should try that for a year and see what happens. Hmm. Okay. I'll pray about it. Yeah. I appreciate your suggestion. <laughs> Pete, you're always just a wealth of knowledge. I think so. I'm I agree. grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, good work in the book. Um, Let's not take this long to talk again. Okay. Because I feel like I, you just need me in your life. I do. Do you have anything else you need to talk about? Uh, no. no. I don't think okay. so. Good. I'm All right. Okay. Well, then we'll I'm just covered. doing this whole book thing now because I mean, it's actually it's a lot of work right before a book comes out and right mm-hmm. after. There's like an intense three or four months where a lot of stuff happens. So a lot of stuff. But I'm a little tired actually. Really? Yeah. Your book comes out the 1st of, uh, of April, is that right? 5th of April, the, yeah. The 5th of April. Yes. People can pre-order it now, though. They can. They should. Yeah. They should just go and pre-order, click, get it sent to them. Go to wherever. I mean, it, I have links on my website, obviously. People can go there, too, if they want to. But, it's it's yeah, it's been available for pre-order for probably about, well, as we're taping this, probably for about three weeks now, I'd say. That's exciting. Yeah. That's exciting. Have you made all your kids read the book? My kids don't read my books. I, wife no no I, I just sort of like you know funny thing my you know my one my one daughter didn't know that i was sort of a thing until hmm. she was a senior at a christian college and she called me up crying apologizing to me she says dad all, all these people know who you are better than i do because they read your books and i'm saying well i i can sell you a copy of discount if you want you know you can read them <laughs> I don't. All all kidding aside, I really just I don't. You know, it's not that like family life and writing has to be separate. I just I've never believed in it's that important a thing that you need to have people in your family read your books if they want to. They can, and I shouldn't. And I said they don't read my books. Yeah, they've they've read they've read a number of things. It's just Mm -hmm. not the centerpiece of our existence as a family. I've you know? talked to multiple people who say the exact same thing. Yeah. You know, friends who talk for a living, their spouse doesn't listen to them. People who write for a living, their yeah. husband doesn't read it. I mean, it's just, I think that only makes sense because you, you you know the person. You don't need to. You shouldn't have it. to, like, feel obligated to do that. You know, you're not a customer in a sense. You're yeah. And, you know, yeah. my wife used to be a neonatal ICU nurse until we just moved to Austin. And I never once went up to her hospital and watched her perform her right. NICU st- stuff that she right. did, whatever that is. I don't know. Yeah. Never did. So and I she never comes to church and hears you preach probably, right? No. She says she, she streams it on her phone, but I don't I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't believe is that. Is that why she's always volunteering for the uh, nursery or something? Or? Yeah, it's weird. She volunteers at the nursery, but she also says she's going to do the parking lot ministry. Yeah. And so she tells everyone that she's doing those things. But um, I always come home and she's still in her pajamas. <laughs> so I don't. I don't know how that happens. Uh, I don't do counseling, Luke. I can't help you with that. So. Well, luckily I have my own therapist, so thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got a full-time job. All right, yeah. Pete. It's a pleasure, as always. All right, Luke. Same here, man. We'll Thanks for checking out yeah. Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>